the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot of information that we Value courage. Hey everyone, I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. And this is the We Get Real AF podcast, a safe and inclusive place where we redefine feminism and bridge cultural gaps with each episode. We talk with female leaders about things that matter to you most, your health, finances, raising kids, building your career, everyday life, and so much more. Plus, we take a look at how emerging tech and science are shaping our future. Not a coder or a rocket scientist, neither are we. We will spark your curiosity and give you practical advice for living your best life in a world that's changing at lightning speed. Let's learn together. Join us every Tuesday for smart, real, and relatable conversations. And subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find at We Get Real AF across all social media platforms for exclusive online video content. So grab a coffee, set your intentions, and let's dive in. Our real-life segment of We Get Real AF has covered a range of family health topics over the last several months. We've myth-busted cold, flu, and COVID symptoms. We've talked about how to care for your little one's bumps and bruises. So today, we'd like to focus on the wellness of teens and tweens. We're rejoined by Dr. Leslie Marshall, our medical doctor and parenting educator, to discuss adolescent health, medical concerns, risks, and mental illness. Leslie, welcome back. Yeah, super important and also kind of super tough topic because as much as we might want as parents to get our hands around our concerns about our teens and tweens, um, it's also a period where they're trying to bust out and have fewer hands and controls on them. And so it makes the job uh, scarier, uh, even more important. And uh, anyway, so it's a, it's a good one to talk about. Looking at adolescents and what's happening in their brains, you know, they may look like adults and eat like adults and run and move and play and all those kinds of things as adults can, but we have to remember that their brains have not caught up yet. They're it's a full, you know, maybe even 10 or 12 more years till age 24, 25 before their brains have fully matured, primarily getting on that critical thinking, that executive function, that decision-making, that all of those things that come with what we describe as maturity come a lot later. So we might look at our, you know, our kids and think, oh yeah, they're, they're adults, they've got it on, but they're not, they're not on the same page in terms of thinking. And so risk-taking is one of the biggest things that kind of colors all the health issues um, and maybe all of the, the concerns we might have about adolescents, they have a disproportionately to us higher uh, interest and pursuit of risk and, you know, and have a diminished sense of their own vulnerability. And so that's uh, a worrisome cocktail for, for parents. We have in, uh, injuries, accidents, motor vehicle collisions. Those are big and up there. Um, some of that as well related to risk taking, related to maybe not uh, using judgment the way that they might do when they're calm, but when they're with friends and under the influence of those pressures or maybe under the influence of high emotions in other ways, they might be making different decisions altogether than they would in, uh, you know, if you just ask them the question, oh yeah, sure mom, no, no, I'm not going to 
you know, I'm not going to be drinking too much. I'm not going to do this or that. And then they arrive at a party, oh, you know, and it's the whole emotion is different. And three might not seem like too much in terms of drinking. Um, so alcohol and other substances are issues. We have concerns about sexually transmitted diseases. Um, if you think about HIV as well with them, and it's not something that we would necessarily think about. We kind of think about it as, yeah, we took care of that. It's a yesteryear, yesterdecade kind of illness, but it really is very high in populations of adolescents because with risk-taking, they're not using protection. Um, and so they're at risk for those types of those types of illnesses. So Leslie, I mean, that's a lot of different kinds of risk-taking behaviors that we've just covered. And I know um, so often teenagers have the not me syndrome, right? They think it's not going to happen to me, but that's when you're at the greatest risk. So as a parent, how do we get our arms around this? How do we talk to our kids in a way that it doesn't just go in one ear and out the other? We want them to think of our advice at the moment when it most counts, which is probably not going to be the moment they're with us or going to be with their peers. So how do we even start putting those good, wise uh, decisions and thought processes in their brains so that they're equipped with that when they are in the heat of the moment? So as with so much of what, we're, what we talk about in a lot of these health segments, prevention and getting to them early is so important. So having a relationship with your kids long before they're going to actually be driving with, you know, by themselves, discussing driving, having them, you know, in the front seat with you and talking through your decision making and talking through what your concerns are as a driver. It may not mean the same thing because we all know what it is to be a passenger before we're ever a driver, but those messages get in there and probably even more importantly is to do what you are going to preach. So model yourself what you're, you know, you're expecting your, your teens to do. Um, I know I've been guilty at different times. Don't do this. I can do this, but you can't, you know, when I'm skidding through perhaps, you know, a yellow light, I don't want them to do that. Practice what you then want them to do. Um, and when you make a mistake, you know, when you do something that you know that's unsafe or I shouldn't have done that, own that and explain it to your to your kids. Like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. That was inappropriate. I could have put me, you, whoever else at risk, other people out there. So have those conversations early. Have a relationship with your kids so that you are having those discussions well before sex is going to be something that they may be considering they may have pressure or hearing about. You want to be the one there first to give them the facts, the information, the risk, because they will get educated somehow, but it may not be accurate. You know, they may hear it from their peers. They may hear it from the internet with perhaps some accuracy, but maybe as well, a lot of inaccuracy or the light is shed on it in a different way. It may be true, but it may not be the whole picture that they're seeing or hearing about from friends. So have those conversations. And I know, I mean, all of these things are uncomfortable. They mix in not just physical safety, there's emotional safety that goes in with that too. There's our own sense of morals and what we want them to do and not to do. But if we want to protect them and be able to have the conversation tomorrow and tomorrow about 
what might be perceived of as a mistake today, we have to, on one level, set aside our judgment parent hat and let them know, I made mistakes, you're gonna make mistakes. It's, it's expected. Here's what we do with the mistakes and here are some of the things to help you navigate so that you don't make them where they're not recoverable. So that when they are away from us, they're able to navigate that better and develop that sense of pause. What am I doing here? We know our children. Hopefully we, we know them very well. And so we're looking for things that are changes in their behavior where they are displaying through their behavior, they don't wanna to go to school. Um, they might have physical uh, complaints, stomach aches, headaches. They may just be very tired. Sometimes it can just be, I'm, I'm nauseous. Sometimes they'll actually throw up with the idea of going and, and facing a tormentor. So those are things to consider. Um, sometimes it's hard though, you know, asking the questions directly because, you know, we're all thinking about it and you're asking them, you know, is somebody bothering you? Is somebody bullying you? And very often, you know, surprising to us, they may say, no, everything's fine. I'm good. I'm okay. And kind of clam down because there's so many other layers of self-image and self-preservation that goes into it. So they don't want to look like they're weak um, to their own family. They don't want to feel like they're weak and they need to call in uh, a parent for assistance because that may even be some of the uh, things that they're being bullied about, that they have a good and close relationship with your mom. Oh, what are you going to do? Are you going to call your mom? Is your dad going to come up here? The risk because they will get educated somehow, but it may not be accurate. You know, they may hear it from their peers. They may hear it from the internet with perhaps some accuracy, but maybe as well, a lot of inaccuracy or the light is shed on it in a different way. It may be true, but it may not be the whole picture that they're seeing um, or hearing about from friends. So have those conversations. And I know, I mean, all of these things are uncomfortable. All of these things are, they're, un they're uncomfortable because they mix in not just physical safety, there's emotional safety that goes in with that too. There's our own sense of morals and what we want them to do and not to do. But if we want to protect them and be able to have the conversation tomorrow and tomorrow about what might be perceived of as a mistake today, we have to, on one level, set aside our judgment parent hat and let them know, I made mistakes, you're gonna make mistakes, it's, it's expected. Here's what we do with the mistakes and here are some of the things to help you navigate so that you don't um, you know, make them where they're not recoverable. We want, you know, everyone's gonna have a mistake. We want them to be recoverable failures or recoverable um, experiences where they can learn from us so that when they are away from us, they're able to navigate that better and develop that sense of pause. What am I doing here? I want to hit on anxiety and depression with the peer pressure that you have involved with everything, all the messages they're getting. They may come to you. They may not come to you. And hopefully you're asking questions about their daily lives anyway. But um, along with peer pressure, there's also bullying at schools um, and, it, and it goes into teens and tweens, um, you know, 
a lot these days uh, about self-image, et cetera. So can you touch on that and what we should be looking out for as parents and in the conversations that should be had at home um, to address these things? We know our children. Hopefully we, we know them very well. And so we're looking for things that are changes in their behavior where they are displaying through their behavior, they don't wanna to go to school. Um, they might have physical uh, complaints, stomach aches, headaches. They may just be very tired. Sometimes it can just be, I'm, I'm nauseous. Sometimes they'll actually throw up with the idea of going and, and facing a tormentor. So those are things to consider. Um, sometimes it's hard though, you know, asking the questions directly because, you know, we're all thinking about it and you're asking them, you know, is somebody bothering you? Is somebody bullying you? And very often, you know, surprising to us, they may say, no, everything's fine. I'm good. I'm okay. And kind of clam down because there's so many other layers of self-image and self-preservation that goes into it. So they don't want to look like they're weak um, to their own family. They don't want to feel like they're weak and they need to call in uh, a parent for assistance because that may even be some of the uh, things that they're being bullied about, that they have a good and close relationship with your mom. Oh, what are you going to do? Are you going to call your mom? Is your dad going to come up here? And so that they can read as, um, you know, a self-fulfilling negative uh, prophecy. And so they want to see if they can figure out how to handle it on their own, but frequently they can't. So I would you know, maybe start asking some of those questions in the hypothetical. You know, if there's something that comes up, say, on television and it's bullying, you know, you can have a question that's not directly focused at them about that so that you are laying some foundation that it's OK uh, to bring that to me. That And you're also explaining that that's not fair. And what are some of the kinds of ways to handle that? And so you're getting some information, maybe even getting some um, tacit acknowledgement that something deeper is going on, but you're laying the foundation for a conversation where they can circle back and come back to you. Now, if you're concerned about something, you know, more emergent, like something physically bad, if your child's coming home injured or scraped um, and they're saying, no, it's nothing. Well, that might require, you know, an intervention in terms of going to the school or the team or whatever, and having a more frank conversation because, Sometimes the best thing to do is is actually to intervene and forget about what it looks like if your child is not safe, safe emotionally and safe physically, get them out of there and then figure out what to do to, to manage their mental health and how to together, very often this becomes a family kind of dynamic perhaps with counseling, to figure out where to go next. But um, so much of this comes down to relationships but as i said earlier they're trying to break away and so their tendency to come back to you as a as a knee jerk may not be there so we have to be creative in how we try to broach this subject you know i've got three grown daughters now and as i think back on the teen years so much of what you've said leslie just it does come down to relationship and and what type of relationship with you have you have with your child which of course you start building way in advance of the scary years, the teenage years. Um, 
And I think a, a challenge that I encountered that I think a lot of parents do is that so many of these things are scary. And when a parent is scared, their reaction is to freak out, is to judge, is to react, is to say, what were you thinking? How could you do that? Or why didn't you tell me that so-and-so was doing this at school? And it comes across as an accusation, which makes the child want to recoil within themselves even more. So, so I just want to caution the parents out there who are listening to just take a beat. There's so much power in taking a moment to process your own inclination to swoop in and fix everything or or chew your kid out because you're just so freaked out by the choice that they just made or the friends that they've chosen or whatever it is. Take that beat and then speak to them in love. It can, it can be firm, but come from a place of compassion and love. And another thing that I just want to throw out there is a lot of times I wanted to sit down across from my daughters and say, just get right to it and just say, okay, talk me through this. What did you do? Why did you do it? Blah, blah, blah. And that's not always effective, right? Like it's sometimes it's better. And I always found it was better to maybe find something that we could be doing shoulder to shoulder, baking cookies, a moment where we're out doing something where the, the focus isn't we're going to have this big conversation right now. And then just start to broach that conversation while we're doing something, playing basketball out in the backyard or something, and just start asking some of those questions and tip, dipping your toes in. I think you get more information out of your kids that way. So I just wanted to throw those thoughts out there. Yeah. And so that kind of leads me to another strategy. Sometimes when they have friends with them and their friends have a different type of um, tolerances for, you know, for what you might say, because you're not their parent. So sometimes I can bring up topics about, you know, drugs or sex or whatever, because there's one or two friends there. My daughter might be like, where are you going with this? What are you doing? And then the friends are, are interested. And so I'm getting, you know, I'm just kind of what's going on in the friend group, who does this, you know, and a conversation ensues. And then when, you know, your, your child might feel more comfortable because their friends are more comfortable. And then there's an exhale and an easier conversation can, um, you know, can develop uh, that way. But you're, you're so right. Um, doing things where you're not reacting from fear because our fear as parents frequently comes out as anger, disappointment, um, like you said, judgment. And so, and it's really hard not to be there if you haven't worked it out on some level in your own head. Like if my daughter or my son comes to me and they say, Hey, I had, you know, they had marijuana and I tried some, there was a gummy and I did this. If you're putting it out there in words that they can bring anything to you, then you have to be true to that. Um, and if your first response when they bring something to you is to go, you did what? then you've closed the door and it's going to be even that much harder to reopen it again, if at all. Um, not that these things are not recoverable. If you quickly say, oh my gosh, I should not have responded that way. So sorry. Erase, erase, do over, please. Tell me more. Well, then you're probably golden. You're fine. But understand and try to rehearse some of these things. Like what if they say this? Even You might do it with your significant other. What if they tell me this? Or, hey, I can walk in. I'm so-and-so to, you know, to my husband and I'm going to tell you blah, blah, blah. And we'll know whatever the first response is. Okay. Now what's going to be your actual response if this happens so that you can, um, we have this, this saying in the emergency department, when a true emergency comes in, because many things aren't, 
But when a true emergency comes in, the first thing you want to do is check your own pulse. Be calm, because then you can bring your calm. You want to bring your calm to their drama and not your drama to augment their drama. Totally. And again, we've talked, this episode is so highly based on effective communication and establishing trust with your children. And circling back to the beginning, um, you know, my husband and I are having a conversation about age appropriateness with my daughter as open and, you know, transparent as we want to be with her right now at five, but establishing that. I, I think that in a way, as scary as some of these topics are and heady as they become teenagers, um, it puts us a little bit, you know, in that uncomfortable zone. You know, if we are transparent with them, it makes it a little less um, awkward, I feel, because you're past the years of, okay, is this age appropriate? How am I going to explain this? Hopefully you've already had the sex talk, the drug talk, all the talk. So now it's just putting all that information to good use and, you know, real life experiences that you're pairing it up with. So I just want to touch on that because I think just having really open communication with your kids, no matter what the age is, is key to all of this at least they know that they can come to you with something because you're going to handle it well um, and and not overreact. So having all of these tough conversations, starting them five years before you really think you should is ideal because usually then they're just looking at you. It's not like a, um, a button topic or a button issue for them, but it doesn't have immediate relevance. So you can get, in a more dispassionate way, you could get the facts out there. You know, you can talk about the risks. You can talk about options. You can talk about um, so many things in a calm way. Age appropriate is, can they hear it? Are they going to be calm about it? And a lot of that is, you know, can you deliver it calm? And can you deliver it as information that, you know, hey, you're not going to really need all of this stuff right now, but it's important for me to start layering it. And layering is important. It's not one conversation. It's not six conversations. It's a lot of little conversations, um, but it gives them an opportunity to, to kind of circle back and say, hey, remember when you said blah, 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 and you've forgotten. And, and then you realize, oh, this is from the sex talk or the drug talk or the smoking talk. And they're coming back with a question that's great. You have planted a seed that is, you know, blooming and this is exactly what you want to have. And you have an opportunity to explain that both, you know, in a very narrow educational health perspective, but also layer on that your particular beliefs, what you think is maybe good or not good, safe or not safe about that. So yes, communication is the underpinning of all of this and start early, get uncomfortable early so that you can get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of our job as parents is to um, understand that it's, we can't put things off. Procrastinating and child rearing is not, is not a good plan. You really want to be proactive in all of these things. Another thing that comes to mind is as your kids sort of start getting to middle school age, there's sort of a sweet spot I found, I feel where they're starting to be preteens, but they're still talking to you and they'll share with you things that are going on at school or with other kids. And sometimes those can be great opportunities to have conversations about, well, why do you think Jenny did that? Or why do you think she's dressing that way? Just asking them to start sort of critically 
analyzing and thinking objectively about what their peers are doing and having those conversations and asking them those questions, I think a lot of times can help them shape their own values and go, you know, maybe it's not a great idea to post that on social media. It looked pretty silly when so-and-so did it. You'll learn a lot about your kids because sometimes, well, I'll come to a conversation like that. Um, my son or my daughter will have explained something that happened, like you said, around middle school, maybe even ninth grade. And they're talking about it. And immediately I have a perspective, you know, in the first two or three sentences of what they've explained. And I'll ask another question, another question. And then I'll get some very you know, surprising information about the mindset of, you know, my kids, like how they're approaching it and what else they've seen that is coloring the behavior that they're talking about. And sometimes those things are very, very telling and very useful because you get an eye into the dynamic of the classroom, their perspective, you know, their emotional intelligence um, and how they perceive all these things. And sometimes it will change my mind when I'm listening and not jumping in to, you know, to judge and, uh, and redirect to open my mind is the best way to keep their minds open and keep them coming to me. And all of these layering conversations, you know, starting those, that five years earlier than you think you should, Leslie, it's, it's really good practice too, right? So that way you can get some of those little reactionary things out of your system, you know, before, <laughs> before they become a thing. Um, I had some really good advice uh, from a, a single mom friend of mine years ago before I had children, but I loved it so much that I started implementing it with my five-year-old. And um, it's basically asking, you know, uh, best part of your day, worst part of your day, funniest part of your day. And they're open-ended questions, same thing every day, and they get into a routine. I find out some of the in most interesting things and things I would not have found out otherwise had I not asked those questions since I've been doing it with my daughter. Um, and again, just setting the tone. She's young now, and hopefully that'll turn into, you know, a tradition and other little, com you know, stories and conversations that'll come from just those little seeds that you're, <laughs> that you're putting out there. Um, so I thought that was really good advice. Yeah, that is great advice. And the best part of that advice is starting it early. This is just, so you're establishing, this is what we do as a family, or this is what we do in our mom-daughter relationship, is when we come back together after a separation, we go through what happened. Because it's great to have that established when their tendencies later on may be to withdraw somewhat. If that is already a pattern that's wired in, they're more likely you know, to lean into that or continue with that. So. Every, like with everything, earlier is better. Earlier mm -hmm. is better. Is there anything else we didn't cover? Yeah, so I just want to touch a bit on, you know, anxiety, depression, and suicide. Definitely since the pandemic, anxiety and depression have gone up for all of us, but significantly for teens. And uh, again, even pre-pandemic, suicide um, among teens, attempts and and, and uh actual suicides have gone up as well. And so this is obviously hugely scary. We don't want to bring our fear, which looks like judgment or hysteria or whatever, um, to this. But obviously, this is potentially life or death. And so we want to be mindful of that. And again, this is knowing your kid, both in terms of conversation, but also in terms of watching and seeing energy level changing uh, 
watching and seeing if they are self-isolating, um, watching and seeing if their focus or interest is more towards things that are you know, more somber, uh, dark, or um, death, or hopeless oriented. And those are clear you know, warning signs, especially ideas and thoughts about hopelessness or futility. And so don't, you know, don't miss those. Make sure you're coming to that with concern, love, and understand it's not a faux pas. It's not dangerous to speak the words. So are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling hopeless? Have you ever thought about suicide? Many times people will think that if they say the word, they're planting the idea in the person's head and they don't want to be the one who said, oh, they weren't thinking about it until I said something and now that's something going on. Very often the person who is very depressed or having suicidal uh, ideation, suicidal thoughts, would like to talk about it and will tell you about it. And you don't want to miss that uh, opportunity. So out of fear, this is a big thing. You know, just, oh my gosh, what am I going to do if my child says yes? Um, well, you're going to know, A, your child said yes, and you're going to get um, some expert um, advice. There's a suicide hotline for the country, but also there are many closer resources in terms of getting into to counseling. But anxiety, depression, uh, all of those, I think, especially when it starts into anxiety, starts interfering with their ability to do regular daily activities, school, dressing, bathing, um, interacting with friends. If you see a kind of a contraction in their personality and their energy, that's a point for you to be more proactive and um, ask direct questions. Probing in a loving way. Again, this can, this is a shoulder to shoulder, like what you mentioned earlier, Sue, a shoulder to shoulder and maybe not necessarily, you know, an eye to eye, which is more penetrating and, and kind of challenging. I'm so glad that you pointed that out and that you, we made time to talk about that because it's so incredibly important. And I just, I just want to say to everybody out there, you know, our kids are so resilient, but they're also so fragile, especially during the teenage years and especially with all the messaging and all the pressures that come at them from the world. And so love them extra patiently and with extra tenderness and pay close attention. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Leslie, for mentioning specifically that saying the words is not planting a seed in someone's head, because I think that that is more thought than not. Um, mm -hmm. So thank you so much for, for pointing that out to us. Um, and this has been a great conversation. Hey there, we hope you're enjoying the show. Do you work for a company or brand that wants to empower women? We're looking for sponsors for the We Get Real AF podcast. Reach out to us at wegetrealaf at gmail.com for more information. You can also show your support by finding the We Get Real AF podcast at ifundwomen.com. We have patron exclusives waiting just for you. Thanks for listening. Moving on to Profesh Sesh with Elisa Walters, our professional recruiter and talent specialist, where we talk all things career development. Today on Profesh Sesh, we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence. These are soft skills and qualities that 
you really need to be successful in the modern workplace. And you're going to be assessed on these in behavioral-based interviewing, which we've we've also discussed before with Elisa Walters, our talent specialist. Um, So we're going to be just unpacking what emotional intelligence is, how you can measure your own, and how can you shine those qualities forward when you are interviewing for a new role. Elisa, welcome. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I love this topic. And um, I think that uh, just to, to bounce off, we'll start with what emotional intelligence is and unpack that a little bit. Um, so really just understanding um, emotional intelligence as being, you know, uh, the ability to understand, perceive, manage your emotions um, and recognize um how you regulate your emotions, that self-awareness and being able to recognize what's going on internally and how to regulate that, um, you know, inside out, if you will. That's the the basic, I would say, um, overarching definition of emotional intelligence. And so the question might be, well, why do, why do we need to do, have that in the workplace? Why can't we just do our jobs? Well, because you're working with people. If you are working with people, it's, it's important to understand who you are, how you regulate your emotions, how you're perceived and how you perceive what's going on in, in outside. Um, because your emotional intelligence is also what's going to help you resolve conflict. Um, and then, you know, take it a step further. If you want to manage people, and I think I can speak for all of us that we would also want to be managed by a leader that has emotional intelligence who can recognize um, when, you know, there's a stressful situation or there's conflict and be able to, to work through that because of that, that EQ that they possess, that intelligence uh, quotient, if you will. Um, so I think that emotional intelligence is, is everything. And when you're assessed in the workplace, you know, those, those behavioral-based interview questions that you might get in an interview might be, tell me about a time when you've worked on a team and you were working on a stressful situation and there were conflicting opinions. How did you work together? What was the outcome? Those kind of questions that you might get in an interview, that's how they're assessing that core competency skill of emotional intelligence. Um, so it's really important for yourself to, to recognize what are your values? How do you handle yourself in situations? Um, what's your approach to, com- what's your communication style, which we have an entire episode on different communication styles. So recognizing what your communication style is and, and how you work in a team environment. And also EQ, I think, is also a gateway to being empathetic. I think it lends itself to empathy. So that self-awareness is key. And if you don't think that you're, or maybe you think you're self-aware, but maybe you've heard otherwise, um, I think it's important to, to check in, you know, and check in what's going on the inside and what's coming out on the outside. I love this topic, ladies, because personally, I've always come from the thought and belief that You can teach someone technical and hard skills in the way you would like something to be done, but how they do that and their personality, which I feel EQ, like 
that's the core of your, your personality. Like you can't really teach those things. Those are just with you and how you operate. So for me, it's like what you do versus how you do it and how you do it has always mattered more to me. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Um, And I would like to even get a little bit more granular, Elisa, with the specific personality traits that are measured for emotional intelligence. You've talked about it's how you regulate your own emotions, how you communicate, and these things tie to empathy. Is it also things like patience? Is it your ability to read a room? What are some of the granular qualities you can start thinking about? These are strengths for me, and here are examples that I can bring to an interview. Yeah, I think if you work well in a stre- in, in being able to help diffuse a stressful situation and you come at it from a place of you're trying to problem solve and everybody's really stressed out on your team and not sure how to get to the outcome, but you feel that that's a strength of yours of being able to bring people together and coach somebody through, I think being able to paint the picture of how you coach somebody through a difficult situation when you're in a high pressured, stressful situation, that's a huge strength. And that if you're preparing for an interview and you're prepared to talk about a a time when you've been in a situation in the workplace that you've had to diffuse a stressful situation and you know that this is a strength of yours, that's a perfect time to to bring up that example, how you problem solve in a in a high pressured environment where some people might be more um, emotionally reactive. How do you take that beat when everybody around you might be reacting to that that stress in the moment? I think emotional intelligence and how it translates into the workplace, you know we we talk about the whole being on this podcast and being your yourself at work. I think when you're, sitting with yourself and trying to to recognize what those strengths are when it comes to your your own self-awareness, your own emotional intelligence. Um, I think it goes back to those practices and habits that you implement into your daily life if you do, if this is something that resonates with you. Um, but you know, taking those few moments in the morning to to meditate, to get clear, to 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 sit with yourself. Cause I think that in those times of, of quiet, when we're sitting with ourselves is when we really learn a lot about ourselves. And I think that sometimes people who may not necessarily sit with those thoughts may not necessarily understand themselves. And, and, and that's not everybody, but I just, I think that when we're very connected to, to our emotions and how we manage and process them, um, I think that makes us a lot more self-aware as individuals. And we live in a time where social media is just so, has taken over everything and you're walking down the street and people are blocking the sidewalk so that they can get their perfect TikTok video um, and lacking the self-awareness that there are people trying to walk. And I, I think that I, th- I think that there needs to be more things done, I think, especially Sorry, younger generation, I'm calling you out, but uh, I'm calling you out um, because I do think that um, this is a skill set that you need to exercise more of. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because, and not to point a finger or judge, but Sue and I had an experience recently with someone of the younger generation, and I'm all about the spirit of the younger generation and everything that they want to influence and change in the world for good. However, there is the flip side of like the sense of entitlement for most things that comes, it just lands differently with someone who 
who isn't like that and who knows the work and the the things that you have to do as a professional um, to, to pave the path for where you want to get to. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to judge. I think, you know, there's so much that we you can learn from the younger generation with a lot of the technology and the innovation. Putting my recruiter hat on, I think it's really important that emotional intelligence is something. I, I also know that that may come with experience and time. But if you're, you know, coming out of college or high school or trade school, whatever it might be, and, and you know that you want to run a business of your own, you want to manage people, you want to have a team. That's great, but you need to understand how you regulate your emotions, how you diffuse stressful situations, how you problem solve before you start telling other people what to do and managing other people. Because I think emotional intelligence is one of the most crucial core competency skills that you can bring to, you know, your own business adventure, the workplace, whatever it may be, because that's where you spend the majority of your time. And you want to make sure that that interaction is, is positive for the most part. I mean, not everybody gets along, not everybody agrees, but understanding how to be able to navigate that, I think is, is such an important skill. And, and like you said, it's, it's not something that's, that comes naturally to some people, um, but there are things that you can do to, to learn how to be more in tune to it. And, and, and that takes practice and, and time. And again, maybe it's a matter of sitting with yourself, you know, for 10 minutes each morning, meditate, um, and, and get clear on things or sitting down and understand, well, if I was in a a stressful situation where I had to come up, why I had to problem solve, how would I do it? Maybe walk through some steps as to how you would problem solve or, how you would come up with solutions, how you work together in a team, because those are also things that you'll also want to, as a candidate or somebody who is trying to sign a client or whoever it may be, that you want to be able to assess too. I I think when it comes to skill set and hiring somebody or finding a company that works for you, emotional intelligence is going to be at the top of my list personally. I've also heard this referred to as soft skills, and I've heard many managers say, to Vanessa's point earlier, you can hire for the hard skills, you can train somebody for the hard skills, but those soft skills, those interpersonal relationship skills are really uh, a lot harder to instill in somebody. So I guess I have a couple of questions for you, Lisa. One is, other than sort of meditating and self-reflecting, which I think is always useful, if you're not a self-aware person and you don't really know where to begin, are there other resources that can help you kind of build your soft skill muscle? Like, Are there books that you've read or online sources or apps or things that can help? So that's my first question. Yeah, I'm sure that there are, there are plenty of great books out there. I would say that before you get into the books, before you get online, um, it might be worth having a conversation with somebody. Maybe you're sitting down with a mentor or um, a boss or somebody that you just really respect who understands you as a person and you value their opinion and get feedback because part of emotional intelligence is being able to take criticism, to being able to receive feedback in a way that you can regulate that. Um, So I would start there 
um, and, and have conversations with people who know you and people who whose opinion that you trust and value and people that you look up to that, you know, you might consider a mentor. And, and that's at any stage of the game, no matter where you are, no matter if you're getting your first job for the first time or you're in a leadership position. Um, again, I, I, I'm, I'm of the mindset of always being a student. Um, I also think that it comes down to uh, active listening, exercising how you listen to people and how you receive that information. And again, using a phrase we use often here, taking a beat before you respond, before you react, there is so much power in, in my younger years, I would probably have been a little bit more reactive emotionally in some ways. If, if somebody gave me feedback that felt like um, I, I was doing something wrong. Um, and, and, you know, it, it feels, it feels like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist and I take, I take feedback to heart. And so younger me may have looked at that as being like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. Somebody doesn't like me. I'm, you know, that people pleaser in me. Um, so I think it's, it's it rec- important to recognize that if you're not entirely sure how to in- answer in that moment or react or respond, take a beat. If you're having a conversation with somebody or you need to diffuse a situation, hey, you know, I just, I need to take a few moments. Let me, let me process this. Let me think it through and be able to come back with a clear, a clearer way of, of communication and, and how to essentially expel what's on the inside out. So yeah, that's probably one of my biggest thing. I think we learn from our peers. We learn from the people around us and, and that's probably where I would start. And a pause is so powerful. I agree with that. I also just wanted to mention that I couldn't agree with you more about asking before you start reading text, because first of all, the information you're going to get from these trusted individuals is hopefully very transparent and comes from a place of building you up. And then you can go and find advice as to those specific things that they mention. And also if this is your first foray into, hmm, self-awareness, let me just, where do I even start? Like the people around you know you better than, than you're even willing to look at yourself sometimes. So I, I just, I want to really applaud you for that because I think that's such stellar advice. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to pivot a little bit and ask, because we were just talking a moment ago about how different generations handle soft skills and, and manage their interactions. If you're a manager of a team, how can you help strengthen your subordinates EQ? Like what are things that you can do to support your team and sort of play to the strengths that they have? One of the things that uh, I would say is as a, as a manager, I think it's important to understand and have conversations, um, establish some expectations. Like what's your communication style? How are we going to communicate? Do we want to have these face-to-face one-on-ones? Are we communicating through Slack? Um, What's going to be the most effective way here? Because I think understanding, especially from a manager, how your subordinate communicates, what their communication style might be. You can pick up on how somebody communicates just by how they send an email. Is it really short? Um, is it bulleted? Um, and, and that right there is going to be telling about, okay, well, then this is how I know I have to communicate with that person. Having under, you know, those, those conversations around communication style, I think 
will open a lot of doors. And I think it's a two-way dialogue. Hey, I just want to, you know, help me understand how you like to, you know, to, to communicate, what methods work best for you, what seems to be most productive. And then, well, this is how I, you know, from a manager perspective, this is how I like to engage with my team um, and, and allow for a two-way dialogue that also allows for that, that, that feedback conversation. I think if there's something that comes up where, you know, you might be concerned about where somebody might be on the spot, hey, there, you know, I noticed that when we were in this situation, being able to give the feedback in real time um, so that somebody can recognize it in that moment. Obviously, when somebody's doing their job or communicating with somebody, you're not going to jump in and say, hey, actually, you know what, maybe you should try it this way, but maybe pull them aside and say, hey, you know, I just want to give you some feedback on on that situation. Um, you may want to try trying it this way or have you given thought to maybe, um, you know, get, get inside their head as to why they made that type of decision. Um, get curious and encourage your team to be curious and ask questions. Um, and then I think as a manager, one of the things that you can do is, is make sure that you're setting yourself, your, your subordinates up with different types of uh, trainings. You know, I know large organizations, especially offer a learning and develop, have a learning and development team. That's a, you know, an arsenal full of information that you may encourage having your or, or requiring your team to to take specific courses so that they're exercising this muscle. I think team building is really great. I think being able to continue to have those conversations and and, and be able to bounce ideas off because I think that gives perspective. We don't want to lose that in this in this isolation time where we're all working from home. So figuring out creative ways to, to bring people together and still communicate in some way. That's great advice. You mentioned listening before when it comes to, um, you know, being the person interviewed or the person in the situation, but also as a, I think as a manager, it's really important to listen to the people that you are um, overseeing because learning their perspectives and their experiences is so important to understand the whole reasoning behind someone's handling of a project or an interaction. So I, I think listening in general is Mm -hmm. so important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and I think you want to help your team build their strengths. I mean, obviously people have to shore up their weaknesses as well. I always feel like for managers, it's so much more effective if you can help your team identify what their strengths are and really focus their energies on those. So um, I think that certainly applies to the, the skill set that we call EQ as, as much as any other skill set. Yeah. I think the other thing is for as managers, making sure that there's, you know, that 360 performance review. Um, because in a lot of those reviews, those questions ask, what are some of the things you think you've done in the past year or three months or six months, whatever the the performance review might look like? Um, Because I think when you have somebody tell you um, what they think in terms of their strengths and weaknesses, that opens up the dialogue as well to talk more about um, maybe something that they're completely unaware that they're doing um, that might be upsetting to another colleague or um, just maybe not necessarily as emotionally in touch as, as or, you know, self-aware as they should be. 
those performance re- reviews, you know, I, I think we've all probably rolled our eyes at having to do them at some point. But I think from a manager perspective, that that opens up the dialogue that can create conversation, which is an in to be able to um, lead to building upon that and and strengthening that and, and helping your subordinates um, just become more self-aware. Alisa, what are your thoughts on managers making those types of conversations comfortable? Because they can be uncomfortable, especially you mentioned earlier, which I think everyone can relate to. It's like the minute you have that situation where someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, notice this went down. This is my, you know, suggestion for next time or whatever you feel like, you, yes, yeah, a slap on the hand, right? How can it be presented in a way that it doesn't feel that way, where you're really both being vulnerable, coming from a really positive place. And also going back to the the reviews or the annual performance review, that's one thing, but also having check-ins along the way, I also feel helps, you know, um, tie all this together. Yeah. The check-ins are are crucial. I think, you know, creating a, a safe space, creating that trusting environment as a subordinate, you don't want to hear all the things you're doing wrong from somebody who necessarily you haven't built a trusting relationship with, um, or that there's some sort of understanding. I think it's important from a manager's perspective to, to, to get an idea, uh, you know, from a professional level, who this person is, who are they, what do they like to do? Um, so I'm a big fan of being able to, you know, take the seriousness out when when you can, and and open up a a, a place where there can be trust and and create that safe that safe space for that open conversation. Elisa, I'd love for you to um, restate an example that you gave on one of our previous episodes about. I, I sort of recall it was like a sandwich where you have positive, then the the critique, and then bookend it with positive. So go over that for us. Cause I think that's a really useful one. When I was getting my certification for, uh, to become a yoga teacher, um, we talked about feedback a lot in, in that teacher training. And this has just stuck with me ever since, and, and has been so instrumental in other areas of my life, my professional career. Um, but the, the feedback sandwich, you give a glow, a grow and a glow positive feedback, some critical feedback that you can improve upon and then end with another glow, what, what they're doing, right. Bring it all together. Great advice. Keep glowing and growing, you know, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Elisa. Thank you. All right. Time for anything goes where we talk just about anything. We are recording during Earth Month, and of course, we're all always trying to find more ways to live sustainably, but as Kermit the Frog wisely told us, it's not easy being green, (laughs) right, (laughs) Vanessa? (laughs) And and so today we thought it would be fun to talk about uh, some things that we're doing that we think are green that maybe aren't. I love the way our, our momness always shines through here. You know, if you if you've never heard the podcast before and you're tuning in for the first time, this is a regular occurrence. And Sue is very punny. So just 
<laughs> so watch out. I can't help yes. myself, people. <laughs> Hold your hats, everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start us off because um, I just learned this one recently. I'm, I'm always trying to compost and do things that are, you know, good for my garden and not just throwing so much into the landfills. And I had read in so many gardening blogs that using coffee grounds in your garden is actually good for them. But I did a little more digging and I went to the Discovery Channel and they had an article on their website that says it's actually not great for your garden. The reason is coffee grounds are highly acidic. And so in general, most bloggers would say, well, use it for your acid loving plants like azaleas and blueberries. But the truth is, if your soil is already high in nitrogen, the extra boost from coffee grounds could actually stunt the growth of fruits and flowers. And there's one really big problem with spent coffee grounds. The thing that makes them so awesome for us makes them really bad for the garden. And that's that they're full of caffeine. And actually caffeine is a chemical produced by plants to kill off the plants around it so that they can survive. And it also turns out that it's not great for earthworms. Earthworms don't want to be caffeinated and it can actually kill them. And also, uh, you know how you're supposed to add organic material to your garden because it supports helpful bacteria? Well, coffee grounds have antibacterial properties. So turns out they actually kill off those beneficial bacteria in your garden. Bottom line, don't put coffee grounds in your garden or do so very sparingly. And I thought that was interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Leave it for your compost container, I suppose, right. you know, your little tin of compost. <laughs> um, so yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, the next point on here is um, believing eco-friendly branded products and just doing your own research. Many brands claim to be sustainable or eco-friendly when really marketers are greenwashing their products to appeal to eco-conscious consumers. So don't take their word for it. Uh, find brands that align with your values. And you hit the nail on the head earlier, Sue, when you said kind of, you did your own research, you, you found an article, mm -hmm. you went to a reliable source. A great place to start is by consulting certification organizations and agencies that actually give a product stamp of environmental legitimacy. And some other good tips are to look out for vague and unsubstantiated environmental claims, as well as over-the-top product advertising with like nature-based themes or excessive green coloring, which I think we've all seen mm -hmm. uh, more times than we want to admit. Yeah. And I have to admit, like, I think I'm kind of guilty of this from time to time because it's pretty overwhelming trying to figure out what's sustainable, what's green. You want to be able to look at a label and go, this is a good one. I'm going to grab it and keep going through the grocery store or whatever, but yeah. it's not that simple. No, not at all. I mean, there's so many products competing for your business, mm -hmm. obviously. So yeah, it can get overwhelming. Yeah. All right. On to plastic bags. The plastic bag has a really bad reputation. I know here in South Carolina, where I live, uh, Target, grocery stores, they don't even provide plastic bags anymore. It's all paper bags. But it turns out that, you know, a lot of times people are using cotton tote bags in place of the plastic bag, but it's a little more complicated than that. In fact, uh, one study showed that in, in 2018 showed that a natural cotton bag must be used more than 20,000 times or for about 55 years before it has the same environmental impact as a lightweight single-use plastic grocery bag. Most of that impact comes from cotton's high demand for water and the use of an ozone-depleting chemical that treats the plant. The result is, of course, a highly resource-costly product. So, you know, again, the, the cotton bag isn't necessarily always better than the single-use plastic bag. And the general advice here, the best bag to use is the one that you already have in your house and just keep, you know, reusing that. And also I read that 
the reusable polyurethane bags that some grocery stores sell may not look as nice as a cotton tote bag, but after being reused only 14 times, they're actually more sustainable than conventional plastic bags. So there you go. I was going to ask about those. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, Sue and I love fashion and obviously a cute toe, a fa- a kind of toe is like appealing because it's aesthetically, you know, visually appealing, um, but it isn't the most eco-friendly. So, well, it's good to know that those, those other bags though, at the polyurethane ones, they're usually larger though. So mm-hmm. they can hold more. So that is a perk on top of being more sustainable. Right. All right. So next on the list, drinking almond milk. Almond milk is a popular and delicious non-dairy milk substitute, but what many almond drinkers don't realize is that it's right up there as one of the most water demanding crops causing groundwater depletion and endangering the bee population. Almond trees, which I did not know, use a lot of pesticides. And while dairy milk still outdoes all plant-based milks by at least three times the environmental output, almond milk isn't its best substitute. And if your goal is to drink the most sustainable product possible, um, you can look at soy milk as your your hero of the day there. And, um, you know, honestly, soy milk to me, tastes better because it's more neutral Mm. almond milk, like anything nutty can be overpowering in general, if you're going just by flavor. Um, but again, going dairy free does help and it is more planet friendly. So just some things to consider. Yeah. That was an eye opener for me because I have been buying almond milk for my coffee in the morning. So I'm going to switch to soy or oat milk. I don't think I love the flavor of oat milk. I feel like I tried that once before, but mixed into my coffee, I feel like it's good. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think soy is like the most like neutral as far as mm-hmm. flavors go. You know, you you don't overwhelm the flavor of everything else that you're pouring it into unless it's flavored because you mm-hmm. can go like the sweetened route and the vanilla route and all that. But if it's just like an unsweetened soy milk, um, we do that a lot because we have a lot of allergies in our house. Um, it seems to be the best, best mm-hmm. route. But dairy milk, cow milk is still the worst for the environment. So. Right. All righty, let's talk fashion. This is a tough one because Vanessa and I both love fashion as so many people do. But interestingly, the fashion industry contributes an equal amount of greenhouse gas emissions, 10% of worldwide CO2, as the entire continent of Europe. Exacerbate that by the fact that trying to figure out what fashion brands truly are green, and Vanessa mentioned greenwashing a few minutes ago, it's really, really hard to tell. Those that claim to be sustainable yet still use synthetic fibers in some of their pieces. The entire denim production process uses incredible amounts of water and dyes that we know are very toxic to our waterways, especially in developing parts of the world. So the first takeaway here is we need to be, as consumers, less consuming. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like we we don't always need the new outfit. We don't always need the fast fashion just because it looks so cute on our Instagram feed because we know fast fashion is probably the worst offender in all of this. Um, And then some general guidelines. One is fabrics that are stretchy tend not to be natural because natural threads uh, are more taut and they also leave the smallest impact on the planet. And also plant-based dyes, if you can find that in the fabric content label, are always better. Um, Now, 
I was telling this to my daughters earlier and, and my daughter, Chrissy said, so basically every workout outfit that I wear is a stretchy fabric. So what does mm-hmm. that mean? <laughs> I'm not going to wear cotton shirts because, you know, they're just so hot and uncomfortable. So anyway, it's just stick to the four S's of sustainable fashion, simplify, share or rent, look on the secondary market, such as consignment, and then try to find things that are sustainably made. And in that case, I feel like you have to look at the brand and then try to shop that brand. Because if you wait and just try to shop each label, every time you go out, you probably go crazy, but that's a tough industry. I don't know. How do you do it, Vanessa? I agree. Well, one of the top tips that I I found as I was researching this topic for anything goes was buy less. So mm-hmm. anything, anytime you can, when you mentioned the, the best bag to use for groceries is the one that you already have at home, look at your closet, look at what you currently have. And I am so guilty about this. I try every season to go through like, and, and remove the things that I don't wear anymore. But the last couple years, because we've just been at home, I haven't mm-hmm. done it. Neither, so yeah. I have so many things that either one, I don't wear anymore or two, I've forgotten I have because it's so over cluttered. And you say this a lot, Sue, what's old is new again. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> so it's kind of like if something's been lingering in there that I haven't worn, I just need to take it out and be like, you know, how long have I had this? Is it back in fashion mm-hmm. now? Now can I wear it? Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a catch 22. And I, I, I do, I try not to buy as much and I try, and I also find that if I impulse buy, it just sits there in my closet versus something that I've thought about and I like do my research on. And then I, I tend to wear those things more. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I impulse buy, which is kind of like that fast fashion thing that you were mentioning, if you see it on Instagram or whatever, it's, it tends to linger in my closet and I don't wear it as much. Um, unfortunately for me, I do like things that stretch because they feel mm-hmm. good and they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just think that a lot of this too is really tough because where do you draw the line? That's why when we say research and what aligns with your values, everyone's values is different and everyone draws the line at a different point, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, at least doing a little bit is helping, right? We always do more. Sure. But I mean, I just feel like every day we're learning something else that we thought was good that we find out is not so good. So exactly. I don't know. Oh, it's tough. I agree. You can't have an all or nothing mindset about this stuff to your point. You just have to start somewhere and it starts with being mindful and being aware and trying to do better and having that intention. You'll do better than you would have otherwise. I will say too, when you're talking about like cleaning out our closets and when we moved to South Carolina, I consigned so many clothes because we just have a small closet here. Several months after I consigned the clothes, I went back and there were some things that didn't sell. And I was like, yay, these are all new to me again. And I took them <laughs> home. <laughs> like, I forgot about this one. I really like this one. Why now. did I consign this one again? Yeah. What was I thinking? <laughs> Everything exactly. happens for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So maybe the idea is just to, the best advice is just to pack away things you're not wearing and then you'll shop your own closet or your own attic later on. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, the next on the list is recycling. I'm pretty good about this personally because I, I get scared and I will mention the reasons why, because I'm like, I don't know if this has something where I'm actually contributing to the problem, um, where it's going to break a machine and mm-hmm. they're, they're going to need resources to fix it. Um, so I just throw it in the garbage, but I always feel guilty when I do that because I'm like, ah, oh, there are parts of this that probably could be, but I just don't know. So, um, there's a term called wish cycling. 
I did not know this term existed, but I didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the thought that the entire lot of recyclable products may be tossed in the landfill all because of one incorrect item. So when you recycle paper goods in a plastic bag, they'll no longer be recycled. Uh, you have to remove paper goods from plastic bags. So, um, it's just really looking at the packaging and then researching it. So it takes time and effort. And I will <laughs> very mm. vulnerably admit that I sometimes don't have that time when I'm just trying to get dinner on the table or put a lunchbox together, or, you know, clean out a lunchbox, all the things being a mom. Um, but, you know, most food packaging indicates a recyclability status um, with universal arrows arranged in a triangle form. Um, you can also go to specific company websites. We will say, sadly, that most Amazon packaging is non-recyclable. And that stinks because, as yeah. we know, Amazon's taking over the world. But you can go, again, to um, certain uh, companies like EcoATM for private recycling, um, Call to Recycle, and that's the number two, Call to Recycle. Um, and then in, uh, retailers, including Amazon, Apple, Best Buy, Staples, um, they all have their guidelines for like electronics recycling opportunities. So check those out. And again, it is just going above and beyond and doing research and making the time for it. A hundred percent. So what this all boils down to for me is it's about sorting. It's about sorting your recycling. And I've never really done that because where I live, we have one recycling bin and we just take everything that we think is recyclable or that says in the package that it's recyclable. And we put it all together in that bin. Well, that's plastics, that's cardboard, that's glass, that's all the things. And, you know, last November we spent the month in Barcelona, Spain working. And what was really cool was that in our neighborhood, they had a glass bin, a plastic bin, a cardboard bin, and it's very like broken down for you. So you're not expecting your local recycling company or, or municipality to do the sorting for you. And I think that's kind of what's missing here probably is that we just dump it all into one container. And to your point, if, if there's something out there that shouldn't be, the whole thing gets sent to the landfill anyway. So, yeah. Well, that's a good call out, Sue. You can find your city's recycling guidelines on their own government websites. Um, some include decals you can download for um, a reference and print it out in your home. But, um, but yeah, it's just, again, nothing is easy. All righty. Let's talk clean beauty. We've we've now oh, <laughs> we've talked about the fashion industry being a hot mess when it comes to sustainability and clean beauty is pretty much the same way. Though many beauty brands are doing a great job putting the planet first, clean beauty as a whole can often be a lawless realm. There is no official definition of the word natural when it comes to personal care brands. So you've got to watch out for companies that plaster that word all over their packaging. Part of why bad actors are so common is that the industry is essentially self-regulated. So there's very little accountability, very few repercussions for companies saying one thing and doing another. And even some clean beauty products have elements in them that when rinsed off continue down the drain and actually are bad for the environment. For example, some exfoliants contain grains that don't dissolve in water and those add to pollution. So in general, again, the rule of thumb is the fewer the ingredients, the better. If the packaging is not recyclable, then that should be a red flag to you that the product probably isn't perfect either. Not every self-proclaimed sustainable beauty brand really is clean. There is an app that my daughters and I checked out and downloaded onto our phones a couple of years ago called the Think Dirty app. And there's 
sort of expert guidance there on what brands are better at staying clean than others. Um, and also when you're thinking about this, don't forget the animals. To guarantee a product is truly cruelty-free and against animal testing, you can look for the leaping bunny symbol. All right, next on the list is assuming rideshare apps are the greatest option. Um, obviously there's convenience in ride sharing services like Uber and Lyft. And a lot of people think that they're eco-friendly because they allow people to easily carpool, which is awesome, right? Well, really the only thing you're saving is money. Um, there was a study back in 2017 by um, the University of California that says that there's actually a proven increase in congestion and traffic by using these services. Um, so uh, the best thing you couldn't can do is walk, bike, you know, <laughs> use public transit. Um, so those are other options versus using um, rideshare with Uber and Lyft. One thing my husband pointed out this morning, which I thought was a good point, is that a lot of those Uber and Lyft drivers are just sitting around idling mm, and yeah. pumping carbon emissions into the atmosphere. So that's part of where this problem is coming from, because all of a sudden we have so many more cars out there waiting for a rider and putting uh, exhaust emissions into the atmosphere. Yeah. That's a great call out because I didn't think of that, but especially in times where um, non-peak times, mm -hmm. I could see somebody kind of turning on their clock and just waiting, you know, with their car yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All righty. Well, this next one is just kind of a cool tip. I didn't know that this existed, Vanessa. I don't know if you did, but there is a growing crop of credit cards on the market that are focused on funding important causes. One of them is the Aspiration Zero card, which plants a tree for every single purchase you make. As an added bonus, the card provides 1% cash back for your purchases. And then there's something called sustainable banking. Um, there's a new fintech company called Purpose, which rewards bank account users for supporting vegan brands and businesses. It also promises customers that your deposits will never fund factory farming or fossil fuel businesses, unlike many traditional banks that make billions of dollars from funding those kinds of endeavors. Again, these are just little things to make you aware of potentially things you may be doing, thinking you're adding value and you know helping the sustainability crisis, however you might not be. Thanks for joining us here on We Get Real AF. Make sure you subscribe to the show and text this episode to a friend. Find us at ifundwomen.com. We have patron exclusives waiting for you. Plus, you'll just feel good. Special thanks to our WeGraph Live events and technical director, Mitchell Machado. You can find Mitchell on LinkedIn, spelled M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-M-A-C-H-A-D-O. And we want to give a big thanks to our podcast sound designer, Sam McLean, that's spelled M-C-L-E-A-N, of InPhase Audio. Thanks for listening.